Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A fascinating story today. Mother George, a black midwife in the early 1900s who delivered many children over a 40-year period in southeastern Idaho. Among them was the grandmother of the author of this historical novel, Lee Cantwell. When Mother George died about 1919 and was dressed for burial, it was discovered that she was a man. And so Lee Cantwell searched, uh, mostly unsuccessfully, for information concerning this person who everyone in Gray's Lake area seemed to have heard of, but uh, no detailed facts were available. Lee Cantwell decided to write a historical novel answering the questions that had tantalized him for years. How would a black man learn the skills of midwifery? Why would he choose to masquerade as a woman for all those years? And included in this novel, other interests of uh, Mr. Cantwell, including uh, battlefield surgery and advances in medicine, including advances in childbirth, development of anesthesia. Uh, very interesting questions, the effects and after-effects of slavery, uh, frontier, uh, Idaho, and what would the place of a black man have been? Possible reasons that uh, for this fascinating story, Lee Cantwell has written uh, other uh, books, including Cross Currents and Finders Keepers, published by Desert Book and Bookcraft, respectively. And his new historical novel is called Mother George, the Midwife Who Shocked Gray's Lake. Lee Cantwell, welcome to Access Utah. Thank you. Uh, so you are a retired dentist. I am. Uh, but uh, interest in writing. And this is, this particular story is, is something, if, if you didn't live directly, you certainly heard of, I imagine. In fact, as, as you've said, Mother George delivered your grandmother. That's right. She, they, they were on a, a cattle ranch in, in Gray's Lake, and uh, and it, it was in, in uh, nineteen eighty eight and eighty nine that they were there, and it was one of the worst winters that anybody could ever remember. They lost all their cattle, and the, even their horses. But that spring in June, on June fourteenth, eighteen eighty nine. Grandmother was delivered by this uh, black midwife. And what she always said was, I was delivered by a Negro mammy who my mother said had the largest hands she had ever seen on a woman and who wore men's shoes. So this is what was known, and people in Gray's Lake would have known of of, of this, uh, this black midwife, a very much part of the community. For over 40 years, must yeah. have delivered hundreds if not thousands of of young uh, infants, yeah. But um, one one day, my mother or my grandmother was telling this story, and her cousin from the area up in Gray's Lake was visiting with her, and she said, "Oh, F, don't tell that story." When they dressed her for burial, they found out she was a man. So, when did this become known in the Gray's Lake area? Well, uh, it would have been it would have been about 1919. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I can establish that is that Ellen Carney, who is a author and historian in that area, and who is the one who gave me most of my information. Of course, the information was extremely limited, mm-hmm. and really only just the fact that that Mother George had lived there, and and that uh, she was black, and then that she was discovered that she was a. Uh, it was discovered that she was a man, and uh, Ellen Carney's father had moved into the area uh, 
in about 1917. And he says a couple of years later, he heard this story. And so that's how I established the dates. Actually, I've, I, I went up to the area and, and, and uh, asked around and talked to everybody that seemed to have any information, and nobody could give me any information at all. And since I had mentioned to uh, Ellen about my grandmother, she had other friends who were historians, and one of them was Quincy Jensen. And he was writing a history at that time of southeastern Idaho. And uh, Quincy called me on the telephone and said, have you, could, uh, can you verify the fact that that your grandmother was delivered by this Mother George? And I said, oh, yes. And he says, could you send me uh, an affidavit or a statement of some kind to indicate that? Because I have never been able to find anyone who would admit being delivered by Mother George, mm. although she must have delivered many. And so I had my aunt, Wanda Nielsen, send a, a, a letter to him and, and indicate that, and he printed it in his book. Mm. And in gratitude, he sent me a huge picture of Mother George, about 11 by 14, and and I was so fascinated by that picture. I looked at it a lot. And the thing that was so remarkable to me was, to me, this looked like a woman. Mm-hmm. No sign of a beard. And every, you know, all you got to do is watch a little NBA basketball, and you see the heavy beards that, uh, even if they've shaved, that show through. And in this picture, I just didn't see that. And uh, I was, I, I just thought, it's a mistake. Uh, it's it's an old uh, tradition or something, but I, I don't believe it. And then I had the occasion of, of a, treating a patient uh, who was an American Indian. And I was as close as a dentist gets to patients. And I looked at that man's face and I thought, he is, his face is completely without a beard. You know, he's hairless face. And I thought, I wonder if it's possible that that this person could have been part American Indian. And so you weave that into your into your novel, uh, and and we'll uh, obviously get into the fascinating characters in this historical novel and uh, very logical way that you, you you create a backstory for it. We don't have the story, so you've created created one. Um, what was the effect on the people of Gray's Lake? Do you think then and and through their descendants? Uh, upon the shocking discovery that this midwife who delivered many babies over 40 years uh, upon her death found out that, that uh, she's a man. What, what it seems to me like is that, that uh, this person was greatly accepted and, and, uh, and, and honored. And, then, and uh, when I... I was reading one of Ellen Carney's books and found uh, the same picture that had been sent to me. And on the back of it, it it had this statement uh, that uh, – let me just just, uh, read the statement that that it had. All right. It says, Mother George 
This was written on the back of the photograph that he had sent me, who lived at Gray's Lake and is buried there. She was a midwife and a successful doctor. Her father was a Negro. Her mother was an Indian. And that just clicked with me, and suddenly I was—I believed the story. But I went up into that area, and I wandered around, went through the, the graveyards. And some of these graveyards in that area are out in, in fields of, of grain and so forth. And just not, things are not the same as they were back in those days. I couldn't find any sign of uh, a grave or any information. I only had the fact that I knew she existed. She delivered my grandma. She was a black. And then it made no sense to me that the stories that came out about that were obviously true because otherwise, why would there even be a story? She would have just died, been buried with honor, and that would have been the end of it. Fascinating story, and of course, the, the there are many questions that come out of that, and that's, uh, I guess, the impetus for writing a novel. Right. Why? How would a black man in that era have learned that medical knowledge? Why would a black man pass for decades as uh, as a woman? And of course, many other questions, and uh, we'll get to those as we go along. And of course, advances in medicine, um, the invention of anesthesia. Battlefield surgery. Uh, obviously, some of this would have uh, come about because of your profession, right? As a dental surgeon, you're interested in surgery. In, in I am, medicine. and 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 uh, and so I was fascinated fascinated by that, and and especially uh, interested in anesthesia because a dentist lives with pain constantly, and 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 every dentist is judged by how. How, how free he can be from inflicting pain on his patient. So I understand that. And consequently, it, it, it's interesting to me that, that the uh, inventors of general anesthesia were uh, dentists. Mm-hmm. And um, they are, because, uh, because of this great interest that they had, and at some point, I'd like to tell you the story of how that came about. We'll do that. We'll definitely do that as the uh, the hour goes on. Uh, maybe now would be a good time for to have you read a passage from the book. Uh, tell us what this is going to be. This is the uh, this is the portion of the book that covers the discovery of Mother George being a man, and in this in this instance, they they found her in a hotel. And, uh, of course, she always kept her door locked in my story because she didn't want to be surprised. And when they finally, when they finally found her and found her dead, this is, this is the incident because they're getting ready to, to take care of the body. It starts out, but Liza, Letty protested, I never laid out a body for burial, never once. Don't you think... It's time you learned how. Don't fight me on this. Mary Jane can tell people to stay away and they'll do it. I'm not sure you can. I don't want a bunch of old biddies gawking at Mother George while we're doing what we have to do. We'll have a viewing when we're done. Right now, we have to take care of our friend, and I'd like to do it with a little dignity. Letty nodded. I'll try, but 
I don't know if I can stand to touch her, Liza. I've never touched a dead person. Not even Mama when she died. I'm ashamed of you, Letty. Mother George helped you have all four of your children. Can't you do this for her? Now come on. Help me turn her in the bed. I'm going to try to arrange her hair the way she wore it. Letty reached out to take hold of her dead friend's wrist and recoiled from the touch. Lordy, Liza, she's cold as ice. She steadied herself with a chair by the bed. She's colder than this chair. She touched the paneled wall. She's colder than this wall. She's the coldest thing in this room, except maybe the brad, brass bed frame. I don't understand, Liza. Why should a dead person's body be colder than wood? I don't know, but it is. Now stop, Letty. Quit fussing. Get hold of her and help me. The two women turned their friend in the bed and let her head extend over the edge. Her head maintained the same angle as when it was held up by the pillows. Letty gasped. It looks like she's trying to sit up. Oh, I don't know, Eliza. Maybe you ought to get Mary Jane. I can stop people from bothering you. I know I can't. Don't you think it would be better? Liza pressed her lips together with disgust. Go get some soap and water and a pair of scissors. We'll cut her nightgown off. It'll be easier. Take her black dress down with you and press it. You know the one I mean, the one with the high neck and the ligament sleeves. Oh, come on, Letty, get moving. We haven't got all day. Mother George's hair was her crowning glory. As Liza undid it, the braids fell down and curled on the floor under her head. It was jet black with little rivers of gray running through it. Beautiful hair. Liza had often admired it. Her own hair was a mousy brown with about the same amount of gray but without the same effect. Mother George's gray seemed to make black hair seem blacker and more striking. Liza thought her own gray hair made hers more nondescript and unimpressive. She undid the braids and combed and brushed her friend's hair until it shone, rebraided it and piled it up as close an approximation of Mother George's usual hairdo as she could manage. Letty came into the room carrying a wash basin filled with warm water. She had a towel over her shoulder and a newly ironed dress over her arm. She complimented Liza on how Mother George's hair looked, set the basin on the end of the bed and hung up the dress. She tried to make a joke about being reminded of two little girls playing dolls together. Liza knew she was just trying to break the tension and looked up at her and smiled. Letty handed Liza the scissors and began sponging off one of Mother George's ample arms, her revulsion at touching the body a thing of the past. When they had washed her arms and neck, they turned the blanket down to the foot of the bed, exposing Mother George's embarrassingly large feet. She had always worn men's shoes, not having been able to find any woman's shoes that would fit her. Her hands were very large, too but the tapering fingers with meticulously clean and well-trimmed nails hinted at the dexterity and gentleness that those hands were known for. Liza took the scissors and made cuts down each side of the nightgown. We'll just lift the top off and slide the bottom out from under her. It'll be easy. Getting under the dress will be a little harder. We might need Mary Jane to help us with that. Liza knew Letty was standing there, washcloth in hand, waiting for her to lift the gown, but she hesitated. Why? She'd done it many times before. But preparing this black woman for burial seemed like a daunting task. She had never seen a naked black person in her life. 
She scoffed at the idea that, that being any different from a white one, but somehow the idea of exposing all that black flesh frightened her. Mustn't be tentative, she thought. Letty was doing much better. To show any signs of reticence now would bring back all Letty's fears and make her worthless as a helper. Liza took hold of the bottom of the nightgown and slowly pulled it off the body. Both of them were stunned for a moment. Then Letty started chanting, Lordy, 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 Lordy. Liza pulled the covers back over the body and grasped Letty by the shoulders and shook her hard. Stop that, she said. Let a body think. She pushed Letty into a chair and began pacing about the room. How can this be? It makes no sense. Mother George was a man, a man. At the sound of the name, Letty started saying, Lordy, 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 again, and then stopped. What do I tell John? A black man delivered our four kids? She, he reached up inside me and turned little Becky when she was coming breach. If my John knew a black man had... Liza's eyes flashed. Had what? Had saved Becky's life before she even took her first breath and made it possible for him to have a daughter to go with his three strong sons? What would he do, Letty? Kill him? Her? Well, it's too late. He's already dead. But what if he wasn't dead? What then? I'll tell you what John ought to do. He ought to drop down on his knees and thank Almighty God for the black man who brought his four children into the world. That's what he ought to do. And now he ought to join together with all the other fathers of the children that this black person has delivered in this country and buy a monument 30 feet high to put on the grave. Hmm. Lee Cantwell, reading from his historical novel, Mother George, the Midwife Who Shocked Gray's Lake. Talking about Gray's Lake, Idaho, southeastern Idaho, and uh, this is based on historic fact. In fact, Mother George, the uh, midwife in question here, uh, delivered Lee Cantwell's uh, grandmother. And this discovery around 1919 that uh, was just read from the, the book. And as you, uh, as you read in that passage... Uh, this was a potentially explosive situation. There was real jeopardy in what Mother George was doing, so I'm sure that uh, she had to be very careful through her life. Actually, uh, if this had been discovered while she was still alive, there's no telling what kind of retribution might have been heaped on her. Mm -hmm. The fact that she was dead and there was nothing to be done only effectively hide the grave and try to forget it. That's exactly what happened. And, uh, of course, that uh, gets into uh, very potentially explosive issues of race and gender um, and and passing. Not only, you know, we hear of historical uh, uh, instances of passing where uh, black people would pass as white. You heard of documented uh, cases of uh, women white women passing as men because they wanted the cowboy life. That's right. Um, but uh, I don't know. This this may be unique, at least in in recorded history. Yeah. Um, and there are specific reasons, very logical reasons, why a black man would pass as a, uh, as a woman. We'll get into that following a break. This is a... 
This is Tom Williams of Utah Public Radio. Tuesday evening, September 17th from 5 to 10 o'clock, a generous Logan restaurant will donate 20% of its sales to UPR. You can dine on your own between 5 and 10 p.m. or meet and eat with me and my UPR colleagues from 6 to 8 o'clock. A special menu that includes fettuccine alfredo, ribeye steak, or grilled salmon is available. I look forward to meeting you. Complete details and reservations are at upr.org. That's upr.org. Thank you. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the regional premiere of Peter and the Starcatcher, with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. Thanks for staying with us. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing the fascinating story, real-life story. Historic facts are these. Mother George was a black midwife who delivered many children over a 40-year period in southeastern Idaho. Among them, the maternal grandmother of the author of this historical novel, Lee Cantwell. And upon her death, about 1919, while she was being dressed for burial, it was discovered that she was actually a man. So that raises some very interesting questions. Why would uh, a black man come west and decide to pass as a woman? Uh, how would uh, she have learned the skills of midwifery? Many other questions, and uh, those are answered absent historical fact, because all we know are the facts as I've outlined them, and we have a a photograph, right? Um, So Lee Cantwell was fascinated by these questions and has created a backstory, and that's this historical novel. It's called Mother George, the Midwife Who Shocked Gray's Lake. And uh, I guess to to boil it down, we'll get into some of the fascinating uh, storylines in your novel. Um, Why would a black man pass as uh, as a woman? Well, to to have the life that uh, that he wanted. And I guess uh, in this case, uh, it involved uh, choosing a profession that he couldn't possibly have uh, done as a man, at least as a black man. That's right. And uh, during, a, during a period of, in, in my novel, uh, I have a period of time when, when uh, he lives the life of a black man. Uh, of course, uh his his life was sort of protected by his mother who was a, a midwife she was an indian and she was a midwife and uh she was the wife of a runaway slave and and so she she had little george as she called him but always kept him with her was ne- he was almost never out of her sight and even went with her to uh, when she was delivering children. And so, because, and he would be dressed as a, as, a, as a girl in those early years because that would be acceptable to the, to the women that she was working with. And so he learned at his, at his mother's elbow being even participating in the uh, the birth sometimes as he as he grew older and helping. Tell us a little bit about uh, the, this art of uh, midwifery, uh, the, and it's very gender specific, right? I guess you you could have the doctor in to help you, but uh, many times the doctor wasn't available, and and it'd be a woman in the community who would uh, have learned this skill. And every community had them, uh, even in 
even in uh, primitive uh, situations, the women were aware of this, and uh, and so they were they were involved in it. And there was, you know, it's just a, a very long and uh, an honored profession. And of course, these midwives were given a great respect and love. And and the fact that uh, I can tell even from my own grandmother's stories that uh, she was so grateful uh, that her mother had somebody to take care of her. And the idea of being concerned about this person being uh, black was just not a consideration, never came up. So this would have been a position of respect for this uh, this Mother George or any other midwife. And, uh, you know, nowadays you go to the hospital and you and you have uh, all the attendant uh, medical facilities there. But in, in this time and in these places, this was a much more dangerous proposition. Women still die in childbirth, but it, the incidence would have been much higher then. Right? I'm sure. And then these, these midwives would just move right in and, and take care of, of the mother in, in, the, in the later stages of, of that pregnancy, you know. Uh, at least the last few days and, and for longer if they needed it. In my own grandmother's case, and, and I know this to be true, she, uh, her, her mother had uh, a terrible infection of her breasts and, 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 and was just in a horribly frightening situation. And... And uh, in in my story, I, I I devote two or three chapters to the actual description of of this incident. A lot of that is is true, and certainly this problem of mastitis was was considerable. And in my story, I have Mother George go to town and come back with a puppy, which she uses to uh, help. Uh, uh, nurse, uh, nurses from from the mother and helps her get rid of the infection and so forth that she has, and that's an absolute fact. That's exactly what what happened in in the case of my grandmother. At least uh, they they used the puppy. Whether Mother George actually suggested that, I don't know. But in in, in the story, that's the way I have it. Mm. Would have been uh, uh, knowledge like this that would have been uh, deposited in midwives like this. That's right. Yeah. So um, that's the reason that you, and very logical reason, and you know, how else would a man like this get to live the life that he wanted? Uh, well, he'd have to pass as a as a woman to become a, a midwife. This is apparently what uh, what Mother George did. Tell us a little bit about the the backstory, the the parents of uh, at least the, as you've uh, imagined it of of uh, the boy who became Mother George. Uh, in in my story, his father is a runaway slave. And, uh, and of course, we talk about the Underground Railroad and, uh, and uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, who was a real person and who, who escaped from, from slavery and then came back and, uh, and, and helped release at least 30 other slaves uh, at great uh, fear and trembling to, to do such a thing. And 
I'm sure she would have been killed if she'd been caught. But uh, in this case, the, the, the slave George Washington Holmes is his name. And, uh, and he, he escapes, but he, he knows he's got to go north, but he doesn't know how far to be safe. And he ends up in a snowstorm near an Indian village. And, and that's how he becomes associated with the person who becomes the mother. And, and she, is, uh, she is a very bright young woman who's been trained by the Jesuit uh, missionaries and, and sisters. And so we have a, an extremely intelligent Indian woman who falls in love with this runaway slave. And so that uh, that that's that's how they start. And then later on, she's uh, racked by conscience because she hasn't had a priest marry her. So she insists that they go back and find a priest. And in the process, uh, one of one of the people who go hunting for slaves uh, find George and take George and her back to the back to the slaveholder. And it's there that she has the baby and and becomes uh, aware of the importance of midwifery and becomes close to an older midwife and becomes a midwife herself. Now, how do they come in contact then with uh, the Irish abolitionist Sean Callahan? He's an important figure in the uh, in in the story. This Sean Callahan is is an abolitionist, and he's on this underground. He's in a station on the Underground Railroad. People, uh, escaped slaves, will come and stay with him for, you know, overnight or a few days or something like that. And this particular one, George Washington Holmes, has been shot in the back with buckshot and has developed an infection, and uh, and so he has to stay longer and. And Sean calls upon his son, Josiah, who is a surgeon and has had wonderful training and has even been to Europe studying uh, medical science and surgery. And he he comes and helps his, his father with the slaves sometimes when they have problems. And so that's how they become acquainted. So a young George... Um, helps his mother, and in fact, it, in, his mother dresses him up as a little girl to make it more comfortable to, for for him to accompany her on the visits. And even more medical training comes right in in the novel when he becomes an assistant to uh, this Doctor Callahan. That's right, and he is he is an extremely precocious and bright young man, and uh, and is in he, at first he's just. Driving the horses for for the for uh, Josiah and 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 sort of he, it's a it's a way to to take care of the boy because the boy gets old enough to where it's no longer comfortable for him to be dressed up as a uh, as a little girl and go along with the mother. Of course, the father has passed away, and and Josiah just sort of takes. Mary in Mary the the mother, and she continues with her with her practice of midwifery, but it's no longer in in adolescence it's no longer comfortable for for little George to go along, and so he just sort of takes it with him. But the the child is so 
fascinated with medicine. He wants to. He wants to learn. Hmm. We are uh, talking with Lee Cantwell, who just joined us, and uh, talking about his historical novel, Mother George, the Midwife Who Shocked Gray's Lake. This is based on historic fact. Mother George was a black midwife who delivered many children over a 40-year period in southeastern Idaho, the town of Gray's Lake, and among them was Lee Cantwell's grandmother. When Mother George died, about 1919, and was dressed for burial, it was discovered that she was a man. That's the fact. We don't have much beyond that. We have a photograph of Mother George, and uh, so many questions arise, and that those are the questions that Lee Cantwell is answering in his historical novel. By the way, uh, where can people go to uh, get more information and perhaps get the book? Well, I have it available at the book table here in Logan, and it's available at... Uh, at Cantwell Brothers Lumber Company, it's sort of an odd thing for uh, they don't they don't sell a lot of books at Cantwell <laughs> Brothers, but they have mine. It's at King's English Books Shop in uh, on Fifteenth South in Salt Lake City, and Frost Book and Record Shop Foothill Boulevard in Salt Lake City, Sam Weller's Books in South Main in Salt Lake City, and my dear friend and. Editor, to, uh, she also has, has helped me edit. Actually, my wife is my editor, and Karen has spent endless hours going through and, and uh, cleaning up my verbiage and, and taking care of the pub, uh, of the punctuation and so forth. But Ellen is a, a dear friend, and she's she's written many books herself. She lives up in Wayan near Gray's Lake and has written a, a recent book on the life of John Gray after which uh, after who uh, Gray's Lake uh, got its name and he was a mountain man and a fascinating individual and she's she sells my books too okay um i wonder uh, is there a uh a email address or some something that people could get a hold of you if they uh, they live outside of the areas that you've mentioned of course uh, it's uh, one word and lowercase. It's L as, of course, L-E-E, that's my name. G-E-E, that's my middle initial, green. But uh, L-E-E-G-E-E 33 at hotmail.com. Okay. L-E-E-G-E-E 33 at hotmail.com. For more information, I suppose you could uh, you'd probably send out a book to, to somebody who who inquired if they live outside of uh, Cache Valley or Salt Lake. Or, and uh, and I've done that. I've had others uh, request that. So the book is Mother George, The Midwife Who Shocked Gray's Lake as Historic Fact. And uh, then the backstory has uh, been filled in. We don't have that. Now it's filled in by uh, Lee Cantwell in this historic novel. Gets into issues of battlefield surgery and advances in medicine following a brief break. Dr. Zorba Pastor, host of Zorba Pastor on Your Health, which of course you hear Friday mornings at 10 here in UPR, is coming to Utah. Dr. Zorba Pastor will be headlining events in Logan and Moab. Here are the dates to save, October 17th, 18th, and 19th. Dr. Zarba Pastor in Utah, in Logan and Moab. We hope you'll join us. More details coming soon. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for staying with us. You're listening to Access Utah. We're spending the hour with Lee Cantwell, who has written a historical novel. Mother George, the midwife who shocked Gray's Lake. And uh, the story in brief, the historic fact in brief, Mother George, a black midwife, delivered many children over a 40-year period in southeastern Idaho. And uh, when Mother George died about 1919, it was discovered that she was a man. So why would a black man pass as a woman for all those years? Could it have been to follow a profession that uh, perhaps he wanted to to follow? How would a black man in that era have gained the medical knowledge that that he obviously had? How did this affect the community, especially upon learning this uh, shocking fact? Those basically are the facts. We have a photograph. And so to fill in some of those questions, Lee Cantwell has written this historical novel which also touches on uh, items of interest to a, a retired dentist, which Lee Cantwell is, surgery, especially surgery in that era, advances in medicine, development of anesthesia. And these are things that he imagines uh, this, uh, this young man, George, learns in the Civil War era before he goes west to Grays Lake, Idaho. Tell us a bit about battlefield surgery. This, this is not the surgery you and I no, today this was, in fact, you might call it barbaric, but I guess it's, it's, it's what was known at the time. Interestingly enough, and you can imagine it uh, when you think about it, speed was critical to a surgeon. And, uh, and in fact, because you were performing painful uh, procedures, the person who could do it the fastest, that's where the patients went. In, and they they would have complete amputation of limbs in minutes, no anesthetic to control the terrible pain. Speed was was essential. In fact, sometimes they'd have their attendants have stopwatches. How long did it take me to do this? So that they could say, well, uh, I was able to do this in a minute and a half or something like that. And there was no concept of aseptic techniques or even basic cleanliness. The surgeons would wipe their scalpels on their coattails, wear the same dark operating coat for years, and never do anything but a cursory wiping down with a damp cloth. It was a a coat of honor, stiff with blood. You, You can't imagine that. But in the finest hospitals in the East, this is the circumstance that was there. And we, we uh, see this as, as Josiah gets his training. And he, he's a surgeon and son of an abolitionist, and that's how he becomes acquainted with, with uh, Mother George, who at that time was called Little George, after his father, who was a runaway slave, and his mother is an Indian, and, uh, and so on. But Josiah studied in Europe and becomes acquainted with some of the giants of medicine and surgery, like uh, Dr. Ignaz Philip Semmelweis. This is a, a, a name that's, that's well known. He discovered the cause, the cause of, of childbed fever. And they were losing scores of, of mothers that, every month in the hospital where he was in Vienna in an obstetric hospital. And uh, he, in, in fact, they had uh, surgeons there. They also had midwives. 
And on certain days of the week, they would accept patients for midwives. Well, the midwives rarely had childbed fever in their patients. So women would, would actually try and hold back to avoid having to go to the to go to the obstetrician because the chances of them catching this horrible childbed fever which was a death sentence was substantial and they and they would even give birth on the stairs of the of, of the hospital trying to avoid going in on a day when they had to go to, to the obstetricians and when when uh, Semmelweis discovered that that what was causing this was dirty hands. He was appalled and just destroyed mentally over the experience because they would go to the uh, post-operative uh, dissection rooms and try and figure out what they were doing wrong and then go directly from there with hardly more than a cursory washing right into the patients and spread the disease from patient to patient. Mm. It was a horrible thing. Mm. When he found this out, he, he developed some techniques of scrubbing and, and uh, using chloride of lime and so forth. And, and the deaths dropped dramatically, even below what the midwives had had. But the doctors complained. They thought it was fussy. They thought it was stupid. It was undignified. And they, they just fought against it, even though their statistics were so much better. And the head of the obstetrics department finally fired Semmelweis. And, uh, he, uh, and they went right back to the same programs, and, and, the, and the deaths of the women hmm. came right back. And in fact, in your book, you, you have pushback from the surgeons, fellow surgeons of Josiah. Oh, Right, but he wants to he wants to do it in the newer and better methods, and I, I guess as with anything, there is pushback. In, in, in my in my story, I have him meet Doctor Samuelweis and become converted to the idea, and and incorporate it into his surgery, hmm. and uh, and and he has a lot of uh, takes a lot of flack for that. And in this case, the midwives were ahead of the surgeons. Um, I would have contributed perhaps to the respect with which midwives were uh, the respect midwives were given this time period. And the main reason that they were that their statistics were better is because of the uh, the autopsies and so forth that were being done by the doctors, and then the infection carried back in, into the other patients. Mm -hmm. And that's that's usually what caused the problem. Another interest of yours, which you weave into the book, the development of anesthesia. You're saying one reason the surgeons pride themselves on their speed, which perhaps didn't didn't uh, lend it, lend itself to uh, good outcomes in some case, I could imagine. But you want to be fast because there's no anesthesia and patients in horrible pain. That's right. And actually, uh, because as I mentioned before, a dentist is so very concerned with, with pain and the problem of that, that uh, Horace Wells was a dentist. And he's the one who, uh, and, and he, he lived back in the Boston area, and, and he uh, saw a demonstration. It was really kind of a, just a sideshow where they'd bring people up on stage and and have them breathe nitrous oxide and and then they would act funny and 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 he watched them cavorting around the stage and saw this one fellow 
hit uh, the, uh, a chair and lay open a gash on his leg and never even stop dancing and cavorting around. And, and so he was able to get a hold of some of this nitrous oxide and really on, tried it on himself. He got the nitrous oxide and, and, and breathed it, and then he had his, his uh, cohort extract the tooth. And he was just amazed. He says, I felt no more than a pinprick. And so he developed this, uh, or used it a lot, and then went in to do a demonstration in Mass General Hospital, in the operating theater, in that great hospital. And uh, uh, Dr. Warren, who was, who was the, uh, the, the chief surgeon, had him uh, administer this. But the man who was supposed to be their patient canceled all of a sudden, and they ended up with somebody who was, who was a drinker and overweight and everything. He was a bad candidate, and it, it came off badly. They extracted the tooth, and the, and the, and the, the patient screamed, and, and everybody in the, in, the, in the audience said, humbug, humbug, humbug. Then, uh, uh, but one of, one of uh, Dr. Uh, Wells' uh, com- compatriots picked up on this, and uh, and he, he he developed it, and he was using ether instead. And uh, <clears throat> they had another demonstration a couple of years later, and Morton, who was another dentist, was in on this d- demonstration, and they they did this complicated surgery. Absolutely painlessly, and at the end, Doctor Warren said, "Gentlemen, this is no humbug." <laughs> and of course, you weave a lot of this into into the, into the book, uh, a chance to do so. Uh, just uh, we have about oh, three minutes left. Uh, one of the things I wanted to cover before we end, you had a chance to imagine this backstory for this historical figure. All we know is uh, a well-respected uh, black midwife who upon her death has discovered uh, she's a man. So one of the, one of the scenes um, in the book that you will have thought a lot about is how does someone come to make that decision, you know, finally? You, maybe you have this idea, but, yeah, I'm going to settle in Gray's Lake, and I'm going to be a woman, and I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Only you tell us about you know what, what where your imagination uh, took you with with that. Uh, this had to be a fact at some point. Mother George had to make that decision. We don't know anything about that, but uh, you had the chance to imagine it. In uh, in in my book, he comes to this um, point of decision. He's been living, he's been living up in Idaho and uh, and just bringing trade goods and and uh, supplies and so forth from Walla Walla into the uh, into the area of of where the mining is going on and he has little or no respect and uh, you know he's he's a nice fellow and they they're kind to him in a way but it's always a on a lower level then one day he's sitting in a around a campfire and somebody comes riding in and says is does anybody know anyone who can help a, a child uh, I, my my wife's delivering a child do, do any of you know anyone that I could find a midwife a doctor somebody that could help her 
And he has to sit there and realize that he could have saved that child's life and, uh, and, and feel so helpless. And then he looks at his life and he sees there's the, how, how he's treated. He's called boy. It depreciating. He's he's always treated with, with uh, given the most menial tasks possible to do, and and he thinks about his mother, and and how she was loved and how she was honored and revered by all the mothers that that uh, were with her, and he he felt all that and experienced it, and and he comes upon a he comes upon a uh, a chest full of of women's clothes that have uh, been dropped along the side and and so he 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 experiments a little bit and he realizes that I could do this and uh and and so then he just thinks I'm going to become mother george that's what I'm going to do and uh, as these life-changing decisions often happen i imagine it's you know just make the decision and go with it uh, much else, of course, in this book, and uh, more information about the book at uh, email address leegee33 at hotmail.com. The author is Lee Cantwell. The novel is Mother George, the Midwife Who Shocked Gray's Lake. This is based on historic fact. Mother George, a black midwife, delivered many children over 40 years in southeastern Idaho, and when she died in about 1919, it was discovered that she was a man. And so this is the backstory. Fascinating book, and uh, the hour has uh, flown by. Thank you so much, Lee Cantwell. It's a pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Paul Jukes. I am 32 years old. Um, Today is May 2nd, 2013 in St. George, Utah. And uh, I'm here interviewing with Jordan Rapp um, as a participant of the Ironman St. George 70.3 as a a first-time age grouper. And I'm Jordan Rapp, also age 32. It's still May 2nd, 2013. We're still in St. George, Utah. And I am also racing the Ironman 70.3 in St. George with Paul. Um, Only this is probably my 15th, maybe 20th. Uh, half Ironman, and I do this uh, full time as a professional. Great. Um, so, so Jordan, we um, have really been interested uh, as we followed you. Um, I don't know if you remember a while back, I when it was a full distance race here as, as an Ironman, I contacted you and was really excited to have you know Jordan Rap, the Rap Star, uh, come come participate and and see what the course was all about because it was such an epic um, full distance race. Um, and ever since then, we've just, you know, I followed you, wanted to get to know your story. Um, so I just kind of want to dig in and, and learn more about, uh, what drove you as you started triathlon, um, and, and why you perform so well, maybe upfront, um, natural abilities and, and, and stuff like that, that you had, you know, kind of motivations, what were they and, and how was that? Well, I certainly don't think I came to triathlon, in a typical fashion, although I guess it is a new enough sport that there isn't maybe a really typical uh, 
sort of story that leads someone into triathlon. I think that there's becoming one the the guy you know the high school swimmer and runner who then you know learns to bike and I think that's sort of the typical story. Uh, I think I'm probably the maybe the last of a of a sort of generation of, of professionals that you know is successful that sort of came to this sport. Uh, via a different path. I think, you know, in 10 years, probably I would not be able to do uh, what I had done in terms of of coming in and being successful and making a living and and winning races. Um, I was not uh, a swimmer, a biker, or a runner uh, by by training. Um, I grew up doing team sports. Uh, I played uh, football, squash, and lacrosse um, in high school. So (laughs) no real... Uh, there's obviously some running component to all of those, but I was actually a goaltender in lacrosse so that I could avoid running because I disliked it so much. Um, and then I went to college and sort of through circumstance was looking for a, a sport to do. I, I had hoped to continue playing lacrosse, but uh, was not able to. Um, wasn't quite at that level. Um, I thought I might have been. I think I just sort of barely missed out. And so I thought, well, I'd always, I'd always done sports. It was in a large way part of how I sort of defined myself. And I think a lot of it was, you know, how I stayed sane as mm-hmm. well. You know, mm-hmm. needing to be active. And uh, rowing uh, is still one of those sports, a little bit like triathlon. And certainly, it was a lot more. Uh, Ten years ago, it was one of those sports where they sort of welcome all comers if you're willing to come and work hard. Um, you can be a rower, and I think that. Uh, I gravitated to that. I gravitated to the objective nature of sort of this, you know, hard work gets rewarded instead of a little bit of that sense of does the coach think you're good or mm-hmm. bad and that sort of thing. And, and I, I I discovered, I would say, endurance sports and I discovered uh, that I had a knack for it. Although at the time, I think it was uh, like a lot of folks, I thought, oh, you know, it's because I, I train all year round and I, I found a good summer club and I, I was really, I was very committed to it. And I think that I attributed a lot of my success as a rower to that. And I think, you know, now looking back in retrospect, I obviously had a little bit of a, of a genetic knack for endurance sports mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. you know, I think I was probably harder on some of my teammates in college than I should have been. <laughs> and I think they probably were working a lot harder. And I thought, well, you know, sure. how, how is it that you like, I, I haven't been doing this long. How, how can I be so good? It must be because you, you know, I'm working hard and you're not, you know, I think that, you know, when you're, when you're in college, you, you tend to see things in that sort of very black and white sense. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan. 
KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.